Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Consciousness Review. I'm Miriam Knight. Our guest today is Daniel Parmigiani. Daniel was born in Caracas, Venezuela, like me, and moved to the United States when he was 12. He had a traumatic childhood that left him feeling guilty, isolated, and severely depressed, and neither psychoanalysis nor religion offered relief. His life changed when he experienced a profound vision of self-forgiveness and self-love that enabled him to have a successful career, first as a computer scientist and currently as a day trader in the stock market. Today we're going to discuss his first book, The Magnificent Truths of Our Existence, which presents these important spiritual insights to the world. Daniel, welcome. Hi, Miriam. Thank you so much for having me on your show. You know, I read a lot of books, as you might imagine, and your book really surprised me as being both intensely profound and intensely readable. So congratulations. Thank you so much. You know, your book opens with a description of the sadness surrounding your childhood. Can you tell us about it and how it affected your spirit? Yes, uh, uh, my childhood was fine until age five. That's when a really traumatic thing happened in our household. My older brother uh, was shot and killed accidentally. He was 18 at the time and I was five. And he was like uh, a second father to me. He always took me around and... And he, we had a really close bond. Uh, but when he died, after he died, I wasn't told that he was dead until a year had passed. My mother wanted to protect me from the harsh reality. And that started my downward spiral because I felt abandoned. Uh, and I felt guilty. I thought I had done something wrong. Why didn't he write? And he, they, I was told that he had gone overseas to study. But why didn't he contact me, you know? And, and so that's what began my self-doubt, my guilt. Later on, my mother started really overprotecting me, uh, treating me like a little baby and not letting me do things for myself. So when I went to school, I was a target. I was like a big baby. And kids in Venezuela can be a little bit vicious, you know, when, when you look Unlike a little kids different. here. Well, I think it's worldwide, you know, and, and especially when you're an easy target like I was because I was, you know, a little larger, uh, uh, blonde, uh, blue eyes, and, and I spoke and acted like a baby. So, of course, they're going to pick on me and start bullying me. And, you know, it became pretty violent at times. And uh, I just kept thinking, wow, there's something really wrong with me. And I started retreating into this shell. Uh, later on, my father, who's a, a real, he's the opposite of my mother. He was, he's a, a total perfectionist, very demanding person. So, but he wasn't really involved until later on. And then he started like really trying to make me snap out of what, you know, my, my, get me out of my shell, get me to, he wanted like his son to be proud and, and a go-getter. And I was here, I was terrified of going to school totally, uh, you know, social phobia and just unable to, to cope. Uh, a psychologist said, listen, told my mother, you have to separate uh, the two of them because uh, your kid's not going to make it like this. And that, then my mother, that's when we moved to 
South Florida when I was 12. My father stayed behind. My mother made a, a tremendous sacrifice for me. And it paid off in a way, but in another way, even though I was away from my father, then the perfectionism that he had started taking root in my mind. And I became this raging perfectionist where I, I just could not accept any mistakes I made. And I, and I thought I had to be perfect at everything. Even tying my shoelaces was an ordeal because I had to do it like 20 times before I thought it was right. And, and I just could not live with myself. Uh, by the time age 17 came, and, you know, psychologists tried to help, of course. You know, there was a whole long line of psychologists and even uh, hypnotists. And nothing worked because I was convinced I had to be perfect. And I, I was convinced everything had to be perfect. Even the explanations that the psychologist gave me had to be perfect or else I couldn't accept them. So I was trapped in this mindset. until one, And I became obsessed with figuring out, I was so miserable. I wanted to know what does it take to feel better? What do I need to do? What is, you know, it, you know, I just wanted to know how to get away from this suffering I was in. And then one day it just hit me out of, out of nowhere. I realized, wait a minute, this is all I'm ever doing. All I'm ever doing is trying to feel better. That's all we ever want. I mean, I was in a place where it was just crystal clear to me that this is all we ever want in life, in everything we ever do. Is, and at a deeper level, I began to see where does feeling better, what, is, what does this really mean? And we all have the same ultimate goal of happiness, of inner peace, of love, of just being at peace within ourselves and at peace with, uh, with our world around us. This is what opened my eyes to my true innocent nature and just turned everything around for me and was able to rescue me from this uh, mental prison I was in. Did it happen, you know, all at once or was it a process? Well, the initial eye-opener was all at once when I, I just saw, wait a minute, you know, this is all I ever want. We're always doing the best we can to feel better. This gave me tremendous relief right away. I was able to forgive myself, knowing that I'm always doing the best I can to feel better. And that if I, if whatever I do is, is what I perceive at the moment is my path, my path of least resistance towards happiness. Uh, later on, you know, I, I started digging deeper and understanding more and more what, what happiness really depends on. And I just, it just, it, and it, of course, you know, I was in such a, I had such ingrained mental habits that it took a while to really start manifesting in my life in more and more ways and, and freeing me from my own self-criticism and my own guilt. Uh, but, and, you know, I, I always knew I had to share this information and I had a, a book to write. And I waited quite a while until... I felt ready. I felt like I, I finally understood this at the deepest level I could and that I was ready to represent this. And it took uh, about 15 years for that to happen. How did you decide that this was not just your personal story, but it was uh, a more universal principle? Well, it's, it's, I think it's pretty verifiable that we're always seeking 
pleasure and avoiding pain in everything we ever do. This is something that we can all verify within our own experiences. It's just simply, there is no other way. That, this is nature's rule, nature's law. And forgiving yourself and forgiving others begins there. I, saw, I, I see it as something that people can verify, and I have, and, and I, I uh, lead the reader step by step to how they can verify this within themselves. And I've gotten excellent feedback already on this book, and uh, it's, it, uh, it's already, it's been out only uh, three weeks, but it's already become an Amazon international bestseller and the reviews have been great and people are, I'm getting great feedback from readers saying, yes, they, are, they totally can see that. This is how we really operate and, and that uh, this is a very freeing concept. Your book is actually very comprehensive. I mean, it, it covers the human condition from cradle to grave, really all of our motivations and, and all of the permutations. This must have been the product of deep, deep thought. Um, can, tell me something about the process over the last 15 years. How did you come up with it? You know, did, did you have a, a, a spiritual practice? Did you go to gurus or... Was it primarily introspection? Well, it all started... I wasn't looking for any spiritual truths when I started. When I was 17, I just wanted a way out of my misery. But what I did have going for me, first of all, was that desperation. <laughs> you know, I, was, I just had to find something. I just couldn't live with myself anymore. And I, I, I was even contemplating suicide at the time. I, we lived in the 16th floor of, of, a, of a condo, and I would look down, but, you know, I, I just didn't know if that was going to ease my pain or if I would continue being miserable even after I died, and it would be even worse. So, you know, so that was not the solution. I had to figure something out. Now, one thing, another thing that was helping me was that I didn't, I lived in this bubble. I was very isolated. I lived in my own mental world. And I didn't know that I wasn't supposed to be figuring these things out. You know, I, I, I just, uh, I, I wasn't aware that you, you, I wasn't supposed to be thinking about these things or trying to, I mean, most people think, who am I to? to figure out anything about who I really am or what really drives me, what, what our true purpose is, all these things. But I didn't have those limitations. And the other thing I had was a completely open mind where I was a seeker. I, I really didn't have any set concepts in my mind. I just wanted the truth. And I think that's crucial. That's that is, that is what continued working for me my whole life, that mindset, because I saw, wait a minute, you know, there was a time when I wondered how was I able to figure this stuff out. And I saw that it was, it's a mindset, it's an attitude about believing that you're entitled to know more about yourself and 
not not becoming set in your ways, set in your ways of of of, of looking at things, but an earnest, honest uh, seeking of truth. Mm-hmm. Well, certainly, the great spiritual um, leaders or thinkers have in common a, a couple of things similar to what you describe. One is going within, is meditation, you know, retreating to a cave in the Himalayas and contemplation. You had your own self-imposed bubble or cave as you withdrew from society because you found it so painful. Yes. And obviously from from earliest uh, years, from the, the time of your brother's death, um you were trying to make sense out of the world in the best way you could. So I can understand, really, how your childish mind would put these um, self-referential, it must have been my, my fault, you know, interpretations on it. And as, as parents and, you know, just as um, individuals in society, it is such a testimony to how careful we have to be with our words, the power of our words, actions, and even omissions of communication to, to create permanent scars in others, particularly in children who are the most impressionable and vulnerable. It, it really is so heartbreaking to hear your story, and yet it... Um, it was perfect in its own way in that it brought you to the man you are now. Yes, absolutely. Uh, you know, uh, it's so true. We are born in the paradise that we're all looking for. We are naturally happy. Happiness is our natural state. As children, when you look at little kids, they have it all. They have Their world is so full of meaning. They're, they're excited, they're happy, they're joyous. They don't have all these self-doubts, all these labels that burden our existence later on. And they don't think of themselves as better or worse than others. They don't think of themselves as successful or failure. And this is, the, this is our natural state when we have a clean slate. But yes, as parents, we begin that process of self-doubt and self-criticism and the, the automatic labeling and judging of everything, of ourselves, of others, of everything that happens, that weighs us down so much. We begin, we, as parents, we, we start it all when we, when we start yelling at our kids and withdrawing our love because of something that they do. That's the message we send when, you, when we, we tell our, our boy, bad boy or bad girl, and, and, and we uh, act like we don't love them anymore. Maybe we, of course, we still love them, but the message is clear to them that, you know, I'm, I'm not a good person. I'm guilty. I'm, I'm not good enough. I'm not worthy of love. So this in is fact, we're yes. perpetuating the lessons that we learned in our childhood. Absolutely. It's not our fault. We're doing the best we can as parents, but... There is a better way, a much better way, where we can um, avoid taking away this natural happiness and this natural joy. And it's simply by, you know, you can, of course, you still need to correct and punish, 
but make it very clear that the love for, you feel for them is unconditional. May, go, go out of your way to make that very clear and uh, explain to them that the punishment is a consequence of their actions. It's not that they're bad, it's that their actions were unwise and they lead to bad consequences. It's as simple as that. It's a very subtle, subtle change, but one that can really make a difference. So you talk about the five fundamental truths of existence. What, what um, well, there were the, the, five, the ten magnificent uh, truths, but there were five underlying principles. Let's start with the five. Yes. Um, we all want happiness. That is the universal quest we're on. Just that inner heaven... Uh, that, that is sometimes talked about. It's a mental state. It's not a place, obviously. It's a mental state of mind. And this mental state, of, this mental state depends on five ex existential needs that I call them. And the first one, and I think for many people the most important one, is self-acceptance, simply to like yourself again to be okay with yourself, to be able to embrace yourself as you are. And of course, we have that naturally as small, as small children. We don't question ourselves. We don't, we don't even know that there's any possibility that it could be something wrong with us until we learn that later on, until it's taught to us. So life then becomes an uphill battle to try to prove yourself worthy of your own acceptance, of your own love. And we go out there and I'd say 90% of the things we do out there, it's, it's a direct or indirect attempt to like yourself more, to prove your worth, to prove yourself worthy of your own love, which is pretty sad because it's an unnecessary struggle. We're all absolutely worthy of that, of that love because... And, and that's what the point, the main point I want to make in the book is that we are innocent beings. That innocence we had as, as children hasn't gone away. We're still longing for the same things. Uh, and you know, these I've, things, I've often, yes. often looked at young children um, who have not yet been domesticated. And <laughs> there is a light shining in their face. There's a glow and then you, as they get older, it's like the light goes out. It is, it is heartbreaking. Um, and uh, what your book encourages us to do is to rekindle that light within ourselves, to, to find that childhood innocence, to find that joy in life through accepting ourselves and, and the other processes. So... I'm sorry yes. I interrupted you. I just wanted to make that comment. No, that's, that's a great point. It's, it's all about recognizing that we're still the same innocent beings. That never changed. It's not like suddenly you stop being innocent as you grow up. No. Things get more complicated. It becomes a little bit harder to detect. But it is still there. We're still longing for the same things. 
And we're still doing the best we can every moment, given our current state of awareness, our current understanding of, of reality. I say we're doing the best we can to find that happiness that we had originally, to return to that state. And that is the first existential need, is inner harmony, harmony within yourself, ending that war within yourself and finding peace with yourself. Then when we look outside, outside ourselves, we, need, we also need to have that harmony with the world. And part of that is the next existential need, which is the need for connection. We need to feel connected to others, connected to the world, part of something larger than ourselves. We, we suffer when we feel like we're isolated fragments and that we're not part of something bigger than us and a useful, meaningful part of something greater. And that we are one with others. This is a, because our, our ultimate reality, of course, you know, in, in spirituality, it is completely accepted that the ultimate reality is oneness, that we're all one. And when we feel separate, we suffer. It is not our natural state. It is not the reality of who we are. Next, there's the need for meaning. And, uh, you know, when we're kids, we have that. We have that in spades. Everything is so meaningful. You touch a new texture, it's, it's absolutely incredible. Wow, you're discovering. Your Life is a mystery. The world is, is just a constant mystery waiting to be discovered. Later on, we lose that. Everything is labeled. Everything is explained to us in a very dry way in school. There are no new frontiers. But the worst part of it is that we be begin identifying with this body and thinking that this is all we are. And to me, that was always so meaningless to think that we live once, that you, you only live once, and that's it, and then it's over. And then what, what was it all for? That never fulfilled me, and I think it's a universal problem that we have, that we, we are so uh, dialed into this belief. And yes, we like to think that there's a God, that there's a heaven, that there's an afterlife. But of course, we have our, our huge doubts about that when you, when you dig deep. And that is why we struggle for meaning in this world. Then, you know, the fourth one is the need for justice. And we're born with an inherent need for justice and, and, and uh, fairness. And we just don't find that in this concept of reality that we have, in this worldview where we see others as not innocent, where we see them as guilty, as bad people, and they're doing bad things to us. And the world and, and things, bad things are happening in our lives, and, and it all ends in the end. There's no fairness there. Again, it's a mistaken concept of who we really are and what this is, what's really happening here. And finally, the need for safety. And that's very easy to understand. We all want to feel safe, protected, loved by the universe. That we're not just this temporary blip that's going to end. That is the ultimate sense of lack of safety. We want to feel like our existence goes on Forever. We don't want to have an expiration date. We cannot truly be happy 
as, as long as we believe that, that this is going to end at some point. So these are the five things. And as children, again, we don't think about these things. So we have that inner peace and that, you know, the only problems we have are physical. But we don't have all this mental and psychological and spiritual suffering that plagues us later on as we see things this way and we, per- and we perceive ourselves as guilty creatures. Okay, let's circle back around to the first need of, of self-acceptance. Um, and, and what is the key to unconditional love, do you think? It's uh, to, to return to non-judgment, to, re- to remove the labels we put on ourselves. It's uh, the unconditional love. Unconditional love is unconditional self-acceptance. It's being at peace with yourself. Because love is what emerges automatically when you're at peace, when you, when you embrace who you are, when you find nothing wrong in who you are. And so it's returning to that state that we're born with pretty much. And the way to do it is by understanding that you're innocent and why you're innocent and how it all works. You know, that's what I understand, understood so clearly. And it's clarity that makes a difference. It's having, it's understanding exactly how something works and making a lot of sense out of it. That's what makes a difference in your life. And that's what, that's what I, I was fortunate enough to get, is that clarity of the mechanics of our, of our innocence. We could say, you know, how it can be proven, how, how it all works. And then from innocence, everything comes from there. Now, that's a huge concept, and it, 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 I think it's the foundation of the rest of your book. Because if you can accept in your own being that you are essentially innocent of wrongdoing because everything that you have done in your life has been and uh, the best you could do under the circumstances in that particular situation. And here is is a clarification that you added in your book that made it all um, come together for me. You said, we do the best we can do at our given level of awareness and of awakening. And that's the key, isn't it? Yes, that, that is definitely the, the center, the, the center, central theme of my book. And that alone is, is enough to make a huge difference in people's lives and in how we view each other and uh, to, to know that, yes, at every moment, we're all doing the only thing we can at that moment, given our current state of awareness, our current understanding of what it takes to be truly happy, of what it, of of how to maximize our well-being is another way of putting it, and it may sound uh, a little bit crude or harsh to put it in terms of pain and pleasure, but at the very most basic level, that is what we're always doing, trying to maximize our pleasure and minimize our pain, and we always do it the best we can with what we know at the time. Even when we help others, we're doing this. 
We help others when it brings us either, either brings us pleasure to do so or it reduces some sort of pain. And if something else seemed more uh, rewarding to us in terms of pain and pleasure at that moment, then we wouldn't help that person. And that is how we all operate, and that's what makes us equal. That's what makes us equal to even a, a Jesus or a Buddha, that we all want exactly the same thing, which is a, an ultimate state of mind and approaching it. It's just that in the case of, of Jesus uh, uh, and Buddha, their desired destination was the same as ours, but they just happened to know the way. So it is ignorance of what it truly takes to find that state of happiness, that state of harmony that we all seek. That's what makes us destructive, selfish, inconsiderate. But enlightenment is knowing who we really are and understanding what it truly takes to be, to, to be in that place. And that, that understanding reality at the deepest level automatically brings that state of mind we're all looking for. And we become a Jesus or a Buddha. We're, we're all the same. The only thing that dif- that where we differ is our state of consciousness. Which we're constantly evolving. Let's yes. talk about the second essential need, which is um, connection. Um, we can identify with things like uh, uh, religions, sports clubs, um, political parties, um, because we're seeking that sense of greater identification. Now, is that, do you think, because we don't know who we are and so we're trying to interpret ourselves in terms of our relation to something greater than ourselves? Well... You know, when we identify with something, we find ourselves equal to it. That's what identification means. So, yes, when we, you know, we root for the home team and uh, we identify with uh, celebrities with, that we wish we were more like them, it's a, it's, a, it's a way of our sense of self to expand, and we want to expand. We want to be more than this, these isolated fragments of consciousness. We want to merge back into the universal consciousness. And these are attempts that we make to do so. But we all, we're only able to do it with persons or organizations that we feel a, an affinity with, that we feel equal to in some way. So what would happen if we sensed absolute equality with everything. That's what it takes to merge into that universal consciousness. That's what it takes to embrace everything and everyone equally. And that is the ultimate reality, that we're all equal. And the first way in which we're equal is in what we truly want, in what truly drives us in every single action and decision that we make. And so that's why I, I stress that that is the first step to understanding how you really operate, what's, what's really driving you every moment of your life, and seeing that everybody else is the same. You talk about the definition of I and expanding that. Can you expand on that? Yes. 
Yes, uh, that's 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 uh, an extension of what I was just saying. That we're always doing what's best for I, for our concept of of who we are. So that might mean a very selfish person might have a very limited concept of themselves, and so and 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 be very needy and very insecure in the five existential needs. So all their life is focused on themselves at the expense of others. But when your eye expands a little bit, it'll include your family, it'll include those around you, your friends, and you do for others because that is part of your eye. Doing for them makes you feel good or eases your pain when you suffer when they suffer. So that's an expansion of your eye, of your sense of eye. But you're at every step of the way, you're still doing every moment, what you think is best for yourself, for how you feel, in other words. Uh, And the the only thing that ever changes is your concept of who you really are. That is what differentiates us. That's why some people are generous and compassionate and some are not. It's not because some people are better than others. It's because their, their sense of self is different. Their concept of I has expanded or has not expanded yet. And spiritual, the spiritual path is that expansion of sense of self, of, of sense of I. I remember hearing an interview with Pele, the Brazilian soccer player, and he said that the only time he ever saw his father cry was when Brazil lost the World Cup. And Brazilians so identified with their soccer team, that was part of their eye. And Yes, they better win this year. <laughs> I don't know what would happen. I think if they don't, that's literally. Um, and so your um, impulse in the book is to get us all to greatly expand our circle of eye. To, to really encompass not only family and friends and, and sports clubs, but the, the world itself. Yeah, and this is simply a matter of sensing our equality to others, mm-hmm. uh, understanding how we're all absolutely equal in what, what's really motivating us, what we really want. You know, on the surface, it may appear that we all want we all want different things, that we all have different agendas, some good, some bad, some destructive. And in reality, when you look deeper into that, it's always the same five existential needs that we're trying to satisfy. And it's always trying to return to that state where we're at peace with ourselves, that we embrace ourselves again, and that we feel connected, we feel safe, we feel that we live in a fair world and, and, uh, and, that, and that there's meaning in our lives. It's, it's always the same five things we're, we're looking well, for. And when you start, one, one good exercise we can all do is look at others. And when they do something that, wow, why did they do that? How could they do such a thing? Think of it in terms of those five existential needs and try to identify which one of those needs they're, they're trying to satisfy by those actions. And it's usually, a lot of the time, it's simply that they don't love themselves and they need to prove something. 
There's a difference between compassion in terms of understanding the motivations that someone might have for doing something terrible. Um, but there's a big gap between that and condoning such actions. How do you come to terms with evil, really? Well, you redefine evil as simply wise or unwise behavior. You know, the, the original uh, definition of a sin was unwise behavior. It, you know, later on the church gave it this whole evil aspect, evil angle that wasn't the original definition. There really is nothing except uh, ignorance and wisdom. And we, we have to understand when, you know, when other people act in certain ways that it is out of ignorance. It is out of limit, a limited perception of who we really are, a limited understanding, and try to help that along. Instead of condemning, helping. That goes just so far in the modern world when you look at the um, some of the, the horrible things that have been in, that are in the news, you know, on any given day. Um, at the moment, we have the uh, these Nigerian girls being kidnapped, uh, genocides, uh, uh, pollution, etc. Um, so one can understand it in terms of ignorance, in terms of people being um, in, in their own existential or, or uh, in spiritual pain. But understanding that from our point of view does not, in my view, mean that we can allow it to continue unbridled. How would you deal with it? Well, for, you know, I, I think that there's, it's a very subtle shift. That's all it takes. Uh, because for, right now, what people do is they, 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 they feel this is a mistake. This shouldn't be happening. How could this happen? Something else should be happening. Uh, the subtle shift that brings peace and that brings a clear, a clear mind that can actually deal with the situation is to say, if it happened, it was supposed to happen. Nothing is ever a mistake. Everything is part of our spiritual evolution. And that doesn't mean that you're not going to deal with it. That means that you accept the reality of what is. And then you act to improve it. You act to correct it. You act to do something but you don't you don't judge that's you know it's it's a very subtle shift and the same goes with yourself the same goes with those around you accept the reality of who we are accept that it's not a mistake that if it's happening it's the only way it could happen and it serves a greater purpose that maybe we cannot identify right now and that frees you from the suffering and the resistance that causes lack of peace and that just makes you 
you know, it creates inertia because you're too busy condemning and you're not acting on it, trying to find a solution instead of pointing fingers. Very, very good, very wise. And, and you know, we, we look at uh, the reaction in the world and, and particularly, let's say, on the U.S. political scene, you know, instead of looking for the solutions to a, a given problem, they're always circling back and, and condemning and, and, and piling on the guilt, um, yes. which at the end of the day is useless. So yes. think, think of all the energy that could be freed up for finding positive solutions. Right, right. Yeah. So where do we go from here in terms of our evolution, do you think? Do you see um, the shift towards um, awakening and awareness happening? Yes, you can definitely see it. You know, it's, it takes a, a, a broad view to actually perceive that these are small, small changes and gradual changes that are happening, but you can definitely see that it's happening. I mean, it's, if you look back 500 years ago at humanity and compared to where we were then and where we are now, with all the blind faith that dominated the world, with the, with the, the, the deeper ignorance we were in, the lack of original thinking in people, uh, then you can definitely see an awakening, but it takes and, and then and it is definitely speeding up. Where there are more and more people talking about these about these things and I'm talking about that we're really innocent, getting away from that guilty and condemnation and labeling everything attitude, and embracing our reality as not not a, a sinful reality, but as, as, as a necessary step, everything, viewing everything as a necessary step in our path. I don't know. If you did away with guilt, you would put Jewish mothers in the Catholic Church out of business. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's, it's strange to think, you know, some people might say, how can you live without guilt? What's going to stop you from being a monster? But that ignores that when you stop that self-condemnation, what you find is inner peace. And when you find inner peace, peace with yourself, when you embrace yourself as you are, you no longer need to put other people down. You no longer need to, to, to do all these bad things out there. You have nothing to prove to yourself anymore. Unconditional self-acceptance turns you into a being of love because that's what we really want and that's what we really are. That is a huge concept. If we can find inner peace, then we don't need to find it at the expense of another. Yes. Wow. Yeah, what do you think drives a Napoleon or a Hitler? Intense need to prove themselves. Intense need, intense insecurity where they're not happy with themselves unless they've conquered the world. I mean, imagine 
what level of self-doubt drives such a person to do such a thing. Mm-hmm. If they were at peace with themselves, they would just relax. They wouldn't be, you know, risking it all to do these things. And how many times do we read or hear about people who have everything and yet they're still um, very unhappy? So, uh, obviously, material things um, may bring temporary uh, peace or or at least satisfaction, but unless you get in touch with yourself, unless you actually accept yourself. Yes. Well, yeah, happiness that's dependent on on what's temporary and arbitrary is forever elusive. The only happiness that's forever is the happiness that's dependent on eternal truth about ourselves. In your book, you say that we always follow the path of least resistance towards happiness. What do you mean by that? That if you, if you imagine that happiness is at the top of a mountain and we, we, we're all cl- trying to climb that mountain and get to that mental state of happiness, and that's all we ever want is happiness, then at each moment, we're, everything we do is our best attempt to get closer to that state. See, there is no other motivation in anything we ever do. So because there's no other motivation, we're only driven by that one thing, to get closer to, uh, to that mental state. And that means that we're always seeking the most efficient way to get there. And there is, we cannot deviate from that path. Yeah, of course, the, the efficient way at any given time for any given person. Uh, you know, yes. Whatever each person perceives to be their path of least resistance yeah. towards happiness. That doesn't mean being lazy. <laughs> that doesn't mean they're always looking for the easy way out. Sometimes the path of least resistance is training for that marathon. Because that's what you believe will reward you the most and how you feel. And, and other times, some people think it's, it is laying on the couch all day. You know, they don't, they don't, send, they don't see the, the point in exerting and sacrificing themselves for a greater reward later on. But whatever we, ever, whatever we do is what we believe at that moment will bring us the greatest reward in terms of pain and pleasure at each moment of our lives. This is all that drives us, and it is universal. It happens in nature, and it happens with us. You remind me of my freshman zoology course where we were looking at these unicellular creatures under a microscope. And, uh, you know, the, uh, the, they would go away from pain and towards pleasure, away from a, a, I don't know, a drop of acid and towards whatever. Um, yes. And so we're just multiples of these little unicellular creatures. Yeah. And you yeah. say you say that we we absolutely are incapable of refusing pleasure. Yes. Is that is that really true? We have so little self discipline. <laughs> you know, we do have discipline, of course. Uh, feeling better is is, is unrefusable. Sometimes we might think. 
you know, uh, oh, I'm not gonna, I'm gonna refuse this piece of cake, and but you're not, you're not refusing a pleasure because is it really a pleasure? Uh, you, you're, if you're gonna feel guilty as you eat it, or you, or you can anticipate that you feel guilty about it afterwards, that the net result is not pleasure. So we're always making these calculations unconsciously or consciously. So is that is that why you became a day trader because you were so good at making these instant cost benefit analyses? <laughs> well, I think what helped me uh, be successful at this, and I've been doing this for fifteen years successfully, is uh, being able to stay in the moment, being able to release the past, you know, putting these ideas into practice, uh, and and being able to. Forgive myself if I screw up and, and, and not dwell on it and, and just move on and deal with whatever reality is at the moment. Uh, yeah, you, yes. you actually uh, said that uh, day trading was a, a Zen-like practice. What did you mean by that? Oh, wow. You know, when I started day trading, I thought, you know, I had the misconception, oh, you know, you're going to become this greedy person, this Wall Street guy who only thinks about money and, and I was a little hesitant, you know, but then I started, I started realizing, wait a minute, this is a really a, a spiritual practice because to be successful at this, you have to be in the moment. You have to have tons of patience. You have to release the past. You have to get, let go of your need for revenge because that's what kills a lot of People who try to trade is getting revenge on a certain stock, or, 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 or you know, trying to make back the money they lost right away, and, uh, and you know, it, it, anything that's, uh, that's a bad habit in you will be exposed and will cost you money, either immediately or in the long term. So if you want to be good at this, you have to have self control, and you have to be in the moment at all times. It's a, it's a very spiritual practice when you look at it that way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And would you say that you're a happy person now? Yes, absolutely. And, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a natural state. It's not perfect by any means. It's a work in progress. But my happiness depends less and less on the circumstances in my life. And simply on being, on, on knowing that there's nothing wrong with me. Knowing that my mistakes, that I'm not, I'm not supposed to beat myself up over my mistakes. And that I can embrace those around me and, 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 and find true connection in my family. And, and all these things are what real happiness depends on. It's, and, and viewing life through different eyes, not through these to this limited view that we that many people have that you know we're all need this body and that as we age we you know we're losing value you know that's like a, such a prevalent concept in this society that getting old is such a terrible thing or or uh, you know that you're getting closer and closer to to the end of you or one that being terrified of death all these things are what takes away our natural state of happiness and all it takes is every day reminding, spending some quality time with yourself, disconnecting from the noise of the world, from the Twitter, from the Facebook, from the, from the smartphone, the constant texting. You have to disconnect from that and find a little time with yourself where you 
have certain affirmations or a certain routine that reminds you of this deeper reality, that we're more than, than all this, that, that we're not all these labels and this guilt. Mm. And that, that's what makes the difference, just a little time each day. And you don't have to sit down and meditate. For me, what works is going into the forest. Mm-hmm. And if I'm not in the, near a forest, I look for a beach, somewhere where I feel nature and I, and I can just walk. Be, and, and, and be as a child. Yeah, yeah. Be as a child, forget about everything and just reconnect to, with who you really are. So, Daniel, do you have plans for another book? Not yet. You know, this, this was just finished. This, <laughs> you have to recover and, from this birth. Yeah, no, it, it, it is quite an effort to, uh-huh. to write a book. And I, you know, I, I tried to make this one comprehensive. I put everything you into did. it. I can attest to that. You put everything into it. But it, yes. was, it was all beautifully tied together. Thank is there you. a website that people can go to to find out uh, more about what you're doing? And Yes, magnificenttruths.com. You can also get there just typing mtruths.com. And uh, right now we're still having a little promotion for the book since it just launched a few weeks ago. And, uh, you know, for, for the listeners of this show, if you order it there, it, the book is on Amazon, but you can order it through my website. And then it'll be paired up with, you can get to choose from dozens of different free gifts that can be included with your purchase. And these are uh, gifts that were off, that are being offered by other authors, other best-selling authors, and, and it includes... And that's uh, on your website? Yes. Okay. Yes. Great. So that's your your book launch offer. Probably well worth taking up. Well, we've been speaking with Daniel Parmigiani, the author of The Magnificent Truths of Our Existence. And uh, you can find Daniel's book on his website, on our website, ncreview.com. Uh, I hope you'll join us next week when our guest will be Master Didi Nard, talking about her book, The Compass of Now. And I want to thank you all for being with us and wish you a blessed week. This is Miriam Knight for New Consciousness Review. Goodbye. (music) 